Hello and welcome to the EUISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy what-if scenarios, events that are not as unlikely as they perhaps seem and definitely worth thinking about. My name is Florence Gaub, I am the EUISS Deputy Director and the host of the show, and with me today is Simona Suarez, Senior Associate Analyst working on transatlantic relations with us. Welcome, Simona. Pleasure to be here. I should perhaps also add that I'm here also in a second capacity today as a resident Middle East person, so also welcome to myself in this capacity. Oops, a news item has just been handed in straight from the future, the year 2021. Let's have a look. Today, Elizabeth Warren was inaugurated as the 46th President of the United States. She vowed to heal national wounds and rekindle international alliances. Simona, we are in the Middle East and we're looking at this news item from the future. Elizabeth Warren is now the new President of the United States. What do you think this means for the region? Well, I would expect her to be a little bit more skeptical and prudent with engagement in the region. She was one of the left-wing candidates in the Democratic primary, and she ran on the basis of we need to bring troops home, we need to be more moderate in our defense spending, uh, we need to stop being basically the guardian of the international system, we need more engagement, more multilateral organizations and initiatives in that sense. So I would expect her to, one, start reducing defense spending, perhaps not to the extreme levels that have been circulated in the media and in think tank circles, but that would be certainly something she would push for. She would also push for less militaristic engagement and perhaps other types of political engagement in the region and starting supporting the region in different ways than before. One must also remember that while she has run on a very strong domestic platform, that domestic platform will be informed by the competition with China. So she will also consider Chinese influence in the region when making decisions about American engagement in the Middle East under her presidency. On the surface, that sounds like Obama 2.0. Less military, less militaristic less support to the states in the region in terms of defense. Would you say that's correct? She wouldn't be an Obama 2.0 because she is far in her ideological perspective from what Obama was. A lot of ink has been spent on what mistakes the Obama administration made in the Middle East. And she's not going to be focused on trying to relive that. She's going to be focused on coming up with a new approach that will focus more on engagement from multiple types of sources at the same time. So in a sense, rebalancing the over-militaristic engagement that the United States has had in the region over the past years and bringing in other agencies that can contribute to a sustainable and more stable Middle East. So would you think that states that have sought to pull the United States into this more militaristic posture in the region, i.e. Saudi Arabia or perhaps Egypt, that they would find in the US a different attitude that would not play along with their game? I think uh, she's been very strong both domestically and I suspect she will have the same attitude internationally on fighting corruption and on a more transparent and democratic and open political regime. I don't think traditional engagements in the Middle East uh, with states that are less than 
transparent and open, are going to have a very good relationship with the Warren presidency. Dare I say she's been critical before of American weapon sales to Saudi Arabia for reasons we all know. Okay, as a European, all of this sounds very good because it sounds remarkably similar to what we're doing. Would you agree with that statement? I don't think that even the Warren presidency would resemble what European engagement looks like in the Middle East. It will still be a very American presidency. She will come at it with the humility of wanting to rebalance American policy to the region, but with the knowledge that the United States has its place in the international system. I think that this has been obscured by the fact that her campaigning has been focused so much on the domestic side. This has been the case with all Democratic candidates, right? But One should not be in any way thinking that you will not know the full weight of the American power and what it can do. Does she have a position on Iran? The Iran issue has been most absent, conspicuously absent, and that is making things very difficult. With the exception of Joe Biden, who has in previous situations has been very outspoken on foreign policy issues given his previous roles. All the other candidates have been less interested in expressing an opinion on foreign policy. And of course, given the situation and the uh, focus on electability in the Democratic Party now, and given the idea that we need to be able to beat Trump as a very important factor in the elections, uh, less emphasis has gone on foreign policy, and a whole lot more has been on domestic policy, particularly on the economy. It would be very difficult to estimate what her specific position would be on Iran. I'm wondering, because you said, or she is considered to be left, in quotation marks. In the Middle East, left means something completely different. That is very interesting. The left in the Middle East is revolutionary and the right is conservative, i.e. governments like Algeria, Syria, before the war, I would say, Libya, obviously, before Gaddafi fell. They consider themselves to be revolutionary and in spirit, they're therefore quite close to the traditional left. Can we just clarify? I think Elizabeth Warren is not in that left camp, right? She's not a revolutionary. No, she, she'd be considered more in the left and right traditional divide of the political spectrum, where, you know, left is more associated with social policies. It's an important point to make because it's not a coincidence that Russia gets along particularly well with those states in the region that have this left slash revolutionary attitude. So Algeria is one of Russia's pillars. It's a very quiet relationship. Well, obviously... Uh, Libya before Gaddafi fell, even though to some extent that, you know, their interest in Libya is, uh, stems from that early connection. Egypt under Nasser and of course Syria. So I think that's Russian communist history echoes through these relationships. But I take it she's going to be more, I say, traditional. So left in terms of social policies rather than political system revolutionary. Emphasis on very classical, I would say. It's a very classical definition of left in a sense of emphasizing demilitarization, emphasizing efforts to limit spread of arms, even disarmament to a certain degree. Democratization as well? Yes. Warren has been one of the people who have been supportive of democratization efforts. She has also been very supportive of not engaging in any way in conflict for the purpose of this. 
I think she would pursue in, uh, in the emphasis on the importance of democracy and promoting democracy where possible, but not to the extent of employing military force to do so. All right. I'm just wondering two things. You mentioned earlier that there is this historical regional emphasis on left as revolutionary, which in the current context is very weird or at least peculiar because now Russia is not in any way considered as a revolutionary state anymore. It's quite the contrary. It's very conservative in its politics, not in its policies, as it were, right? So how will this play in the Middle East with the war and presidency? And number two, the Middle East itself, the regional actors, how would they regard the relationship with the United States through the lens of an American woman president and Elizabeth Warren, particularly? The first thing about Russia, I think even though Russia is no longer a revolutionary power in systemic, I mean, national systemic terms, has a strong anti-imperialist, i.e. anti-American tone that the former revolutionary states still adhere to. So even though perhaps internally, you know, Algeria is, of course, not a communist state or probably not even socialist, the way it feels about the international system, that's still very much in line with how it used to feel and how Russia, even though it's obviously no longer part of the Soviet Union, still feels about the international system. So I think like the international component has survived, the national component has not. So they still connect on that level. The second thing is, I think that a woman in power, that's no longer as unacceptable, perhaps, or as unusual in the region as it used to be. I mean, Angela Merkel paved the way, you're laughing, but, um, you know, Angela Merkel, she's, she's a very good example. You know, she not only doesn't fall in line with conventional Middle Eastern notions of leadership, she doesn't even fall in line with conventional notions of what it means to be a woman. You know, but there's a, a very strong heteronormative understanding of what women look like, you know. So I'm not even talking about the modest clothing, you know, even if you look at Middle Eastern music videos, you know, it's hyper females. She doesn't conform with that either, but she is one of the most respected leaders in the region at the international level. You know, if you if you look at surveys, who's popular, who's not, Angela Merkel, she's always up there. She probably wasn't in the beginning in 2005, but she got there through her leadership, through her persistence, through her what is seen as modesty or humility as a, as a leader. You know, I think regional leaders are intelligent enough and not just leaders, also people to see that perhaps they wouldn't want a female president back home, but they can live with the fact that there is somebody from outside. Elizabeth Warren, her relationship with the region would depend very much on her personal charisma, how that is perceived. She would have to come across as more warm, generally value-based personality to make more inroads. I think at the moment, you know, she is seen probably as yeah, just another politician trying to get to power. So she will be judged on what she actually does and how she communicates. And I think communication alone is not enough. Obama's speech in Cairo was I think an excellent speech, but he didn't win the hearts and minds just based on that speech. You know? So it's a combination of the two. But I would say being a woman, that, that is not a criteria that will define the war and presidency in the Middle East. That is um, both reassuring and good to hear because we've had this discussion before, you and I, uh, where power and being perceived as a powerful actor in the region was important for the United States image in the Middle East. And in the sense, Elizabeth Warren would need to be perceived as a powerful, as a strong 
strong leader. And I think so far she has shown in her capacity as senator, she has shown that strong leadership. If you want another reassuring anecdote before we move to the next news flash from the future, Mogherini, there's been a whole news item on the fact that when she was in, uh, in Iran in parliament and the MPs basically stumbled over to get a selfie with her and they were criticized by the conservative media for behaving like that in front of a, of a lady. This is a region that is very intense in rivalry, right? In competition. Yeah. And you've mentioned Angela Merkel and Mogherini, who were both very strong uh, female politicians that drove an agenda of engagement rather than competition and rivalry. So do you think that this would play out uh, in a similar way with Warren President? It could, you know, if she does it in a way that resonates with the region. That's what I'm saying. I think charisma doesn't really have a gender, even though it's true. Some people say men have more charisma than women. I think women have a political charisma depending on context and, uh, you know, what have you. I think a lot, there's a lot of blanks that need to be filled because we simply haven't seen many women in power. So I would say that, for instance, in hindsight, Angela Merkel's leadership style ended up resembling Konrad Adenauer's, but not obviously, you know, not copycat Konrad Adenauer, but a very stubborn, value-based, undeterred, no need to impress anybody kind of leadership style. Others have captured hearts and minds by being much more bold and flamboyant and so forth. So for Warren, I think, yeah, it would mean finding the right voice and the right uh, approach to that region. I would not advise trying to resort to typical machismo elements of leadership and thinking this way I will be taken seriously. In that region, as anywhere else in the world, people will recognize genuine concern, genuine values and consistency. And this is why a relationship will build over time, not she arrives and she's received or not. She will be judged very much by what she says and what she does. She is a fighter and she's not afraid to tackle very hard issues. Uh, she's spoken, at least at the domestic level, against some very strong commercial interests in the United States. So I think she has those basic traits for a strong leadership. Bear with me. Joe Biden has today been inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. He declared it is time to hit the reset button. So Joe Biden is the new US president. What does that mean for the Middle East? Actually, wait, no. What does the Middle East think about? <laughs> Actually, I think he doesn't have a bad reputation at all. I think he's, of course, tightly connected to Obama. So, um, yeah, he has a foreign policy position. It's seen, I think, as quite moderate. So the problem in the region is that there aren't that many moderates. I'm not talking about social values, but I mean, in, in foreign policy terms, there's, there's so many rivalries and therefore the different players will try to get the United States to come on their side. And I think perhaps that was the problem with Obama. For the states in the region, they felt like he was not taking sides with anybody and therefore his value to the region was not that great because <laughs> he didn't tilt the balance in either direction. I think that those that are upset with Trump will welcome President Biden as a echo of the Obama times, but accompanied with the same concerns when it comes to Obama, i.e. does that mean non-engagement on hot potatoes like Syria? I mean, the red line 2013 that I think really burned Obama's policy in the region. Does that mean that instead there will be a strong narrative on human rights, positive values and so forth? I think that that would be a concern, but overall at least the impression that he is predictable in contrast to Trump. 
and that he's measured. Do you think that they would be right in, in seeing him that way? I think Joe Biden is not Barack Obama. He has been very consistent and defended the policies that the Obama administration that he was a part of implemented. But as president, I would expect him to try to set his own legacy. So in this sense, I don't expect him to be anything else but a moderate, but not the version of Obama 2.0. He is um, one of the Democratic candidates that I think would perhaps be most likely to think about a plan of re-engaging the Middle East in the sense of not just focusing on the problems, right, on Syria, on Iran, but focusing on other states that are equally important in the region and have been neglected. Think Egypt and the situation in Egypt that's not improving in any way. Think broader public discontent in the Middle East that's leading to protests, right? So I would expect him to be keen to look at the broader picture in this sense. Would he go as far as reversing some of the Trump administration's very controversial steps on Israel, on Syria, on Iran? What do you think? The big elephant in the room is the Jerusalem decision. The question is really, would any president after Trump reverse that decision? Normally, you don't reverse decisions by your predecessor. So, question mark. I just don't expect that to happen. And amongst other reasons, because the diplomatic fallout from that was not that high. I mean, yeah, everybody was annoyed or more than that. But for Israel, the situation did not get worse. For the United States, the situation did not get worse. So the price for that was actually not that high. Um, so I would not expect Biden to reverse that. What I think is that if he were elected, of course, you know, we don't know where the situation with Iran will be then. But I think he would feel the legacy or the importance of coming to an agreement with Iran on the nuclear deal. The gut feeling I have is that he would not be able to dodge the responsibility for certain issues, including Libya. I mean, Libya was a primarily European operation, but the United States facilitated it. Joe Biden afterwards, uh, and Obama, by the way, went on the record saying that the mistake was not to have actually stabilized the country properly afterwards. So if Libya by January next year is not stabilized, will that fall onto Biden's desk? Could be a good point. And Egypt, well, Obama didn't have a good relationship. Now Trump says that Sisi is his favorite dictator. So I think the Egyptians would be a bit wary about uh, Biden. I think they would see that as a return to Obama moment. Um Saudi Arabia would not be thrilled about about Biden because because he's so measured and he appeals to the Saudis all the time to take the Iranians up on the offer to start a dialogue. The Iranians have offered this numerous times and it's the Saudis that never said yes to it, in part because, you know, they didn't feel they had to because the United States under Trump didn't really push them into having to accept it. So I think Saudi Arabia wouldn't be super happy Although, in contrast to Warren, I think the perception would be that with Biden, maybe you can actually go to war if push comes to shove, whereas with Warren, we get the impression that that would never happen. She would be a whole lot more prudent in making that kind of a decision. But, you know, on Israel, Democrat presidents have been known to have actually quite a good relationship with Israel in general. But Obama didn't. And I think that would also be a problem with Biden. Perhaps also because Trump is now the first Republican to actually have reversed that. Israel never got as much from the United States as under Trump. But was the Obama 
administration relationship with Israel also influenced by the personal relationship he had with Netanyahu. There wasn't much love passed between those two. That could also influence the results. Whereas, depending on ha- what happens both in the United States and in Israel, politically, it may change. And uh, indeed, the relationship with Israel has been very emphatically present in the Trump administration. I think if Biden became president, if the scenario comes true, the general perception would be that the last five years of instability, unpredictability, uncertainty, you know, do we need to stand our own two feet, etc., will be over. And the perception would be, ah, okay, cool, we're all going back to pre-Trump times and we can count on the United States to solve our problems, which could end up creating more problems for the American administration. Because I think Middle Eastern states have that tendency, even though they, on the one hand, constantly decry the fact that states from outside meddle with regional affairs, they inevitably always call for help from the outside. It's a bit of a not exactly consistent position. So I think that could lead very well to escalation of problems in the hope that the United States would solve it. It's very interesting because reflecting on our conversation so far, it seems to me that whoever is president from the Democratic camp has to really tackle both the legacy of the Obama administration and the complications of the Trump administration in at least Syria, Libya and Iran. And these are Hmm. three very difficult cases to untangle. Biden presidency probably would feel the legacy of the Obama administration on the GCPOA. But the question is, right now, the chances for the GCPOA to be salvaged are probably very, very low. The result of the Trump administration's assassination of General Soleimani, they're pushing the Iranians to pull out of the GCPOA. In retaliation, this would be the easiest short-term, cost-free maneuver. It doesn't cost them anything. They don't have to escalate militarily, which would be a much riskier policy. I've been saying for a while that a lot of the conflicts in the region are what I call conflict heirs. So there are conflicts emerging from other conflicts that weren't solved or not solved properly. My feeling is that Whoever is the next president is not just inheriting the Trump years or the Obama years, is effectively even inheriting the Reagan years. I mean, the 52 targets and the 52 hostages. I think that's something that people underestimate. The way the revolution in Iran has shaped the relationship with the United States until today, even though Iran is no longer the power it was in the late 70s, doesn't have the same revolutionary expansionist agenda, doesn't matter. It's still seen that way. And I think in that sense, we're probably always managing, you know, the foreign policy uh, legacy of not just the last generation, but probably two or even three generations before that. How do you then would interpret a Biden presidency? Would he be more on the militaristic side? Okay, we need to surge, close these conflicts or stabilize the region to the largest degree possible so that we are finally able to pull out and refocus completely on great power competition with China? Or are we going to continue to allow ourselves to be bogged down in this? I think what you can't do is go into the region thinking, I'm just going to do the opposite of what my predecessor did, and then that's going to be right. Cue Obama, George W. Bush. Because when Obama came to power, the relationship with the region was very, very injured as a result of the Iraq invasion. And Obama thought, okay, I'm just going to do the opposite. I'm going to pull out of Iraq 
you know, that's what they wanted, right? No, no, they didn't want the invasion. It doesn't mean they will want to be abandoned. You know, it's a truism to say that the withdrawal of the United States from Iraq has contributed significantly to the resurgence of the Islamic State, which was almost defeated by 2010. I think that's the first important lesson. Do not overcorrect in the other direction. If you're Joe Biden, don't become the anti-Trump. And if you're Obama, don't be the anti-Bush and so forth. But I think that the reflex is strong because democratic electoral campaigns will push you into this positional anti-whoever-was-in-power-before-me approach. But the solution to a problem is not necessarily just the antithesis of what your predecessor did. Your logic, the way that you were describing things earlier, it's very interesting because it portrays a Biden presidency as having to be prudent to not overcorrect what Trump has done in the region, in the Middle East, where the United States is perceived as being more engaged, so more on a positive trend as opposed to Obama. But this stands in complete contrast to all other regions in the world almost. Definitely in relation to the Europeans, you do want to be as far from a Trump presidency as possible. He has been very critical, almost antagonistic to European allies and to NATO and to other uh, multilateral forums. Simona, sorry. A news item has just arrived again from the future. We have to go back into the time machine. Let's go back to the year 2021. Donald Trump has today taken the oath of office to inaugurate his second term as US president. In his inaugural address, the Republican president reiterated his vision for the next four years. Donald Trump is again in the White House. To our listeners, this is a fictional scenario. We are not yet in January 2021, but let's imagine that we are and Donald Trump is in for a second term. Simona, now with Donald Trump, we already know a little bit what he's done in the Middle East. What can we expect from him for his next term on the Middle East? A Trump two presidency would have unfinished business in the Middle East, Iran being the biggest challenge. Trump sees Iran as a long term security threat. In the spirit of the actions he took in the last days of 2019 and early 2020, he fully intends to keep the maximum pressure campaign against Iran at full speed. So I think he will be focused on tackling and containing the Iranian threat. I think the key feature of Trump's approach to the Middle East uh, in his first term has been inconsistency. For instance, on military terms, you know, he's known to be quite anti-militaristic, but he's completely flip-flopped on, for instance, American troops in Syria, in, out, in, out, under no circumstance military action against Iran, and then kills uh, Soleimani. What can we expect in that regard? Do you think this zigzagging will remain a feature, or does he actually have a strategy? It's not apparent to me that there is a long-term strategy of the Trump administration to the Middle East. I think that there are broad ambitions about stabilizing the Middle East, but so far his decisions have come out more on the opportunistic side. He sees an opportunity and from his background as a businessman, he finds these short-term decisions to be an advantage. He feels that by taking everyone by surprise, this provides him with an advantage. American presidents that had a clear strategy for the region weren't exactly successful either in stabilizing it. I mean, a lot of fun is being made of Trump's knee-jerk reactions when it comes to, you know, taking decisions. But perhaps we will read a meaning into them in hindsight, hindsight 2020, on what, what he actually meant to achieve. So I think that's just something to be kept in mind. But there is something else, and that's, 
you know, not having a really formulated long-term strategy is perhaps one thing, but the fact that nobody can expect him to behave in a certain way, that creates ripple effect. I mean, we feel it in Europe. I think we also feel it in the region. You and I have had this conversation before about how Saudi Arabia and Israel feel, for instance, about the degree of dependability when it comes to Trump. And Saudi Arabia and Iran, we know the story. They, they're constantly in, in uh, well, geopolitical competition. My sense is that Saudi Arabia, at least in part, behaves the way it does very boldly and you know also it has its more military capabilities now but because they feel that they have to take matters into their own hands when it comes to Iran because they're not sure they can rely on the United States under Trump. So I think that's the ripple effect. There's like rise of regional powers. It's not just the Trump effect but I think he is one of the factors in it. I remember reading a foreign affairs article just recently that basically had the premise of American allies in Europe and in the Middle East and elsewhere are beginning to have doubts whether the United States can fend off for their own interests. From what you're saying, this is the prevailing feeling in the Middle East as well. There's something else I think that's also not Trump's doing, but it's still part of what the region thinks about the United States, is that the Iraq invasion ultimately showed us the limits of what Americans can achieve in terms of regime change and post-conflict stabilization. And in that sense, you know, as long as Iraq is this gaping wound in the Middle East, the Americans will be seen as a failed power. Not, not a failed state, but a power with serious limitations, which is why when this whole Soleimani assassination happened, okay, there was fear of war. But overall, that was quite contained because since Iraq, we know that the United States will probably not just go in and bomb all of Iran and remove the regime and so forth. So for better or for worse, I don't know if we're actually right in assuming this, but I think people in the region see Iraq as the watershed moment that showed us the limits of American power in the region. The other thing is Iran today is not really comparable to Iraq. It's much more militarily powerful than Iraq was at the time. So it would be a far greater challenge for the United States to try and overtake Iranian regime right now, not to mention the fallout in the region. One of the big consequences of the Iraq invasion has been the shift in the balance of regional power that they perhaps did not fully anticipate. And it went in a way that was detrimental to American interests. Now, trying to overcorrect that, based on what we were talking earlier, I think there will be reflection in Washington as to what side effects will that create and how will the balance of power shift again and whether that will be in the interests of the United States or not. Taking on Iran would be a military undertaking way greater than Iraq. One question I have in mind about Trump 2.0 would be Israel. Israel got almost everything that they could ever dream of, but... Israel, or rather the Palestinian project, you know, Kushner's Palestinian project, that's the big Middle East failure, I think. That was the big plan, you know, reaching for the foreign policy stars and not making it in the slightest. That could very well mean that the conversation on Israel just ends there because Israel got East Jerusalem, got the Golan, probably will eventually also solidify the Western border. So what else could happen there? Which means that there's nothing more to be achieved. The Palestinian project that Kushner pushed forward didn't make it. So I don't see Kushner trying again on the 
Trump 2.0. Do you think so? This is a very deep-running conflict in the Middle East. It has been the focus of Middle Eastern politics for so long. And so many people tried to solve it unsuccessfully or partially unsuccessfully. I think that a Trump 2 administration would stay with the current plan, even if it's failing. There is a remarkable endurance in his attachment to the ideas that he's putting forward. We've seen that with other aspects of his policies. So he will persevere in those. But to me, this raises questions as to where does that leave countries in the region, Europeans, everyone else really, as to the resentment that it creates in the Palestinian territories and the amplification of that resentment over time. And depending on how things play out with Iran, are we to expect more support from the Iranians into the Palestinian territories, which is going to help create more violence, more retaliation against Israel? So are we getting back into this pattern of cyclical sort of violence that's fueled by this uh, conflict? This is something to look into, or are we likely to see less Iranian involvement? And then what effect does that have on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I haven't seen many analysis of the Kushner plan in the United States investigating this side of the equation. I was just going to say, no US president is ever popular. Actually, it's not quite true, I would say, in the region. And I would have to rectify myself because I think it depends. So it's true that American support to Israel, America being the global hegemon, it's not just the support to Israel. I think there's a, these anti-imperialist feelings that also play into it. But when I look at the latest, well, actually not the latest polls, this was a poll from 2014 that I'm looking at right now, but it shows a clear preference for democratic presidents in the region. So nobody ever comes above 45% of, of approval rates, but clearly Clinton and Obama ranked higher than Bush father and son and by a pretty large margin. So I think that means that in terms of approval rates, whereas there is latent anti-Americanism, I think that a Republican president will always struggle a bit more in terms of approval in the region because you're asking about resentment. Israeli-Palestinian conflict plays a role in how everybody in the region sees the United States, but it's not the only dimension. Clinton, for instance, was very popular by regional standards, but he did not achieve that much on the Palestinian front either. So there seems to be a regional preference for Democrats, but it's not easy for an American president to win hearts and minds in the region, whether you're Trump or, or Obama. President Trump has, in early 2020, put forward an ambition to have NATO be more involved in the Middle East. And it's very interesting to look at the details, to look closer at the details of what he has in mind. Does he mean counterterrorism? And this has been a part of NATO's narrative, right? And the United States and even his presidency has focused very much on the fact that NATO needs to be more involved in counterterrorism. But then there's also the issue, and this ties back to our discussion about Israel, NATO relationship with Israel, which has been there in the background, has never been very well brought to the surface. But what would he have in mind? Actually, one thing that NATO is doing quite well, but it's not very publicized, it's mill-to-mill -mill 
relations with people in the region or with, with regional states. So the Mediterranean Dialogue, the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative, you know, all these acronyms that mean nothing to the wider audience, not even the Middle East expert audience. They're actually quite good at bringing military people from NATO on the one hand and from the region on the other hand together. And there, states that normally don't talk much to each other, suddenly they can talk. For instance, Algeria, which is the sleeping giant in foreign policy terms, they're very active in the Mediterranean Dialogue. They go to all the meetings. They send officers from the highest levels and so forth. So that's something that I think could be expanded, but it only works as long as it's away from the limelight. And I think putting it into the limelight with you know what Trump is doing might ultimately actually jeopardize its own idea. Although I think it's a good idea because it does work. Ultimately, what you want, perhaps, especially when you think of Saudi Arabia's relationship with Iran, is to go even higher level. And that's a bit of a problem because it has, I think, reached ministerial between the Mediterranean Dialogue and NATO countries only once since uh, the early 2000s. I might be wrong, but I think that's, that's if I remember correctly. So precisely because the visibility is something that doesn't really work, NATO is still seen as this, well, not by the, by the elites, but by the wider public as this imperial american war machine so that that's something perhaps that they want to abstain from a little bit unfortunately war in libya changed that only briefly because i think there was a bit of a nato honeymoon in in the region in 2011 early 2012 when the wider audience in the region thought it was great that nato came and helped the libyans against gaddafi but then how libya turned out to be even though I don't think that was NATO's fault per se. I think it's poor post-conflict planning that had ripple effects. So I think we are, as NATO public perception, we're almost back at where we were before. Wouldn't that hurt chances of promoting more multilateral security cooperation? That uh, idea, even though I'm a proponent of it myself, is a bit the running gag of Middle Eastern history. It's been honestly around since 1945. I think I've counted at least 11 proposals for uh, Middle East security architecture, different types. Did you know that Egypt even applied to become a member of NATO at some point? under Sadat and actually not just under Sadat there was a f anyway I'm not going to bore you with all these details but <laughs> point is I think in principle it's a good idea perhaps the problem isn't the operational details but the fundamental question of what is this actually supposed to achieve and I think that's where we have never really gotten quite a clear answer some wanted to uh, fight terrorism some wanted to protect themselves against the Iranians some wanted to protect themselves against the Americans and then nobody trusts anybody so I think perhaps we start with mill-to-mill -mill conversations first to actually establish the minimum trust necessary to have a conversation about joint security. I was just wondering, where does this leave the Europeans? If we're looking at the three little visits to the future we just undertook, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden and Donald Trump 2.0, I think our inkling as Europeans would be to go for Joe Biden. If we had a vote in this, we would go for Joe Biden simply because we know him and we like what we see. If we could invent a US president, he might not be Joe Biden. But all three do not solve our European Middle East problem, which ultimately always comes back to the question of how do we as Europeans become a player in a region where nobody sticks to the rules and we as Europeans, all we actually know to do is to stick to the rules. We are highly legalistic, value-based, normative, principled continent organization. And the region is none of that. So I think that's fundamentally the foreign policy conundrum that we have to find an answer to. Does that mean 
playing less by the rules, prioritizing or ranking our foreign policy values. I don't know. I think that's a conversation that European member states have to have. But that is a problem that the United States did not create for us. The United States are a player in the region precisely because sometimes they're not afraid to break an egg to make an omelette to achieve their, their objectives, such as the Iraq invasion, which perhaps didn't fulfill their objective, although I'm not sure what the objective was. If it was to get rid of Saddam Hussein, then that objective has been achieved. But we are not like that. We are not a player like that. So that brings us to the end of our little trip to the future, Simona. Normally, I ask my guests to put a probability on the scenarios that we have discussed. We're not going to do that today because, as everybody knows, elections, democratic elections, are very difficult to in any way predict. What I would like to ask you, though, as an outro, is to give us a feeling for what we should watch out for. Are there any cues that are going to give us a bit better idea on who's going to be the next president, perhaps come summer? the late summer, let's say from September onwards, are there any cues you would recommend to look at just to get a bit of a feeling for who it could be? I'm um, not good at predicting elections, as it turns out, with the last American election. But I would say the following. The Democratic Party has been engaged in a very deep, soul-searching, like self-reflection process that has both clarified positions within the party particularly with regard to who is eligible and who is not, but has also obscured some more strategic electoral lines in a way, which is who can be Trump. I think that dichotomy is increasingly important. So a lot is hanging on the Democrat convention and who wins that. And electability is now the number one factor. And then is when? July 2020. Okay. Well, at least from July this year, we'll have reduced our probability to two cases. Yes. Rather than two, three. So that's already a good sign. Um, and then perhaps we should sit down again in September this year. Yes. Number two, I would say the clue would be the evolution of events leading up to the fall, both in terms of how impeachment procedures turn out and possible fallout from that, as well as the evolution of the narrative on domestic politics in the United States. And this has a lot of implications for both the checks and balances within the United States, not just in terms of checks and balances between Congress and with the presidency, but also drawing in the courts and other agencies. So this has a broader implication. So look at these clues. It will definitely be the decisive moment of this year, 2020. Right, Simona, thank you so much for joining me on uh, our little trip to the future. Actually, we took three trips to the future. <laughs> thank you for having me. Uh, lovely to have you. And thanks to you for listening to us. Tune in again for another What If Scenario soon. <laughs>